Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Jerry Boyer, economist, investor, and Christian. He is the author of the book, The Maker vs. The Takers, which takes a look at the economic context of what Jesus said in the Bible. We talk about the book, his reasons for studying the Bible in this way, and of course Bitcoin and how Christians should look at both Bitcoin and how, what was going on back then. Oh, all right. Jerry Boyer, how's everything going? Everything's great, Jimmy. How are you? I am good. I, what, what part of the world are you in right now? I live in uh, western Pennsylvania, uh, a little bit um, south of the Pittsburgh area uh, mm. in the uh, Mon Valley um, mm. uh, and um, have lived here. Well, I've lived in this general region since uh, my late teens. Oh, wow. And uh, and how has it been the last couple of years with uh, COVID and everything in that area? Well, um, I've we, we're home people uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that we homeschooled uh, mm-hmm. and we home business. So mm. life barely changed at all for us <laughs> under COVID, except that I don't I don't mean to be insensitive. A lot of people suffered, uh-huh. except that there were so much fewer meetings that would interrupt mm. my work schedule um, and not nearly as much travel that interrupted my work schedule. So this has been maybe the most productive uh, two years I've had in my life. Oh, wow. Wow. That's saying something. And uh, and indeed, you, you've you written this book, uh, Makers versus Takers, which, uh, which I was very impressed with. Um, can you tell uh, my audience a little bit more about who you are and what led you to write this book? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think that the, uh, the I think the title is mm. maybe a little bit of a failure because mm. everyone says makers versus takers um, mm. when it's really the maker versus the takers. Um, <laughs> okay. So I, that's not that's not your fault. That's mine because there there was already this phrase, uh, mm. this cliche about makers versus takers, that mm. some people are creators of wealth and other people take. Uh, the second group are mm. takers. They take from the maker class. So we've mm. got makers and takers, right? Uh, so mm. that's a common idea. Now, of course, some people are makers in some contexts and takers in others, right? Um, mm. So, but but there's the, the, still that category is a wor- is a worthwhile um, based on a worthwhile distinction. And the point that I was trying to make is that the maker, that's God, mm. Mm. Uh, the singular maker is in was on earth mm. incarnate in human form and he was in a conflict with the takers mm. he was aligned with the maker class mm. against the taker class which you would ex- which you would expect because he's the maker of heaven and earth incarnate mm. um, on earth so that, that's the that's kind of the idea behind the title but what I find is if I have to say that, to three fourths of the people who interview me, then <laughs> and the problem isn't you; it's me in the title. I think I tried to be a little too clever on that one. Mm. Well, well I, I regardless, I really enjoyed the book. But uh, but what, what's your background? What what do you do for a living, and uh, what what led you to actually write it? I'm a financial economist, um, mm. and I say that because usually when I tell someone I'm an economist, they they ask what university do you teach at? Um, <laughs> but I don't, I mean, I'll do guest lectures from time to time, but I work with money as an economist. I forecast 
economies um, and do analysis of of uh, investment opportunities. You know, help build um, indices for portfolios, etc. So I work in finance. So I'm an economist mm-hmm. who actually works. It's not um, lines, vectors on a um, blackboard. Um, mm-hmm. It's actual allocation decisions that I'm involved mm-hmm. with. Um, so uh, what does that have to do with this book? Not a lot in the sense that um, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm an economist. So uh, not surprising, I wanted to know what Jesus was saying about economics. But this was really a kind of a labor of love in the sense that I wanted to know what Jesus was saying about economics. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to know. Um, uh, and um, that's sort of different than a lot of thought leadership work where people they they kind of write books or they do research because they know that there's like a hunger. You know, people will buy a certain book. There's interest in a certain topic, right? Mm. Um, so there's kind of this thing going on out there in the world where there are certain topics that become hot, right? Mm. Um, and then somebody says, oh, I can write a book about that from a Christian perspective and a lot of people will buy my book. Um, or I'll be able to write articles or I'll be able to do a lot of interviews. I call that thought leadership Tetris. Um, <laughs> remember they, get, they look for an opening and then they drop a little block or a, you know, a, a, a line or a stack into that opening. Um, this was completely independent of this. I never thought about a book. I didn't care about a book. A book was not on my agenda. I just did this, my wife and I really, as our own personal study, evenings and Sunday afternoons, you know, which I allocate to biblical study because I actually wanted to know the answer. Now, later on, a friend in publishing talked me about it. He said, well, you know, kind of talked me into doing a book about it. Uh, but I didn't do this to be a book. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, well, there's a lot of threads to pull on there. But um, but let's start with you being sort of an economist and a Christian. How does uh, you know, one affect the other? Because obviously, as a Christian, you have a certain way of looking at economics, but also as an economist, you, uh, as this book has shown, you you take a look at the gospel a little bit differently. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's just uh, sort of like looking at it from the lens of your particular experience. So how have those two things sort of affected each other? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. So you mentioned two things. As... Mm. A Christian who's an economist, then my Christianity affects my economics. That's mm. my day job. Mm. But, you know, I'm an economist who's a Christian. So my mm. economics affects my Christianity and my Bible study. And that's this book. Um, and basically it comes down to this. As much as the traditional theological and religious conversation with its own kind of taboos and guardrails, as much as it basically told me, don't think like an economist, don't think like an economist, don't think like an economist, <laughs> just think religion. When you read the, when you read the gospels, put on your stained glass glasses um, or put on your doctrinal dispute argument glasses, um, but take off your economics glasses. I couldn't stop being an economist um, mm-hmm. when I read the gospel accounts. Oh, so I stopped trying. Um, and then I said, let's go all the way. I'm an economist. Jesus, um, you know, and him are, are, you know, hidden all the treasures of God. Let's let this text be as economic as it is. Um, mm-hmm. 
And uh, so turned out there was a lot of economics there, even more than I expected. But you have mm-hmm. to set aside the taboo. Um, what I've noticed is one of my jobs is I help edit the uh, business page of uh, the Christian Post. And mm. when we put something on that page uh, that applies the Bible, the Gospels, or the Bible in general, to an economic or financial problem, invariably, one of the first or second comments in the comment section is, what are you doing with these worldly topics? Jesus <laughs> is here to save souls, um, you know, and, it do- and, and this doesn't belong on a Christian you know, on a Christian mm-hmm. website. And I'm kind of remembering something happened. I used to be in Christian, I had a brief stint in Christian radio and I interviewed mm-hmm. my friend, Steve Forbes. And mm-hmm. right after that, somebody wrote to complain and said, you know, what I want manna, not mammon, right? <laughs> he, was, he was angry because what he wanted was just doctrinal. Now this particular person just wanted doctrinal arguments. Um, mm-hmm. Some people want personal piety, um, mm-hmm. but he didn't want economics. And to me, that amounts to, when someone says that, that amounts to them saying, be quiet, Jesus. Um, You're only allowed to speak about the topics that I'm giving you permission to speak about. Mm. But if he's the Lord, he gets to talk about whatever he wants to. Um, Mm. Turns out, one of the things he wanted to talk about quite a lot was economics. So Mm. once you, once, and I think a lot of people who are in markets, whether they're mm-hmm. economists like me or whether they're in finance or whether they're like you in programming and cryptocurrencies, um, what, in whatever form, they're marketplace people, they should really allow themselves to bring that lens to the Bible um, mm-hmm. and not tell Jesus, don't talk about money, uh, don't talk about politics, don't talk about economics, just talk about religion. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what they're going to find is that the Bible is like a pop-up book. You open it up and it kind of comes up through numerous layers, which include economics and finance. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's very interesting. So you you allowed the Bible to sort of like speak to you as, as an economist as much as, you know, like just in, I guess, your morality or your, um, you know, Sunday life. You, you sort of like let it penetrate into your economic thinking as you were reading it and examining it from that lens. Yeah. I mean, the issue here is, are you going to artificially place a guardrail or limit on Mm. the topics that Jesus is is allowed to address? Um, or, Or are you going to let the text speak? Now, it could be that you say, no, I'll let Jesus talk about whatever he wants to, and maybe there isn't any economics there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, do you start with the presupposition that there can't be? Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is that allows you to, you know, to ignore certain aspects of the text. Now, like I said, you could say, no, Jesus can talk about economics if he wants. And then you could carefully examine the gospel accounts and come to the conclusion that he says very little about it. I don't know how you can come to that conclusion, but you can. Mm-hmm. The question is, what do you say and what do you what do you rule out in advance hermeneutically? Mm. And mm. I think what we do is we rule out in advance everything except a few topics which are strongly emphasized that have to be ruled in. So I remember talking to a friend who actually gets it, you know, about economics mm. and finance, but he's kind of in the academic world of seminaries, et cetera. And I told him about some of this research early on, about, for instance, the way in which the temple and the temple elite. And to some degree, the scribes uh, and lawyers who were kind of acting on their behalf 
the way in which they were exploiting people. And my friend said, well, I can tell you when you go out there, what you're going to get from the theologians, they're going to say, no, 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 you can't do that. These passages like the woes, you know, in Matthew, they're about false teaching. They're not about Mm -hmm. economics. Now, of course, the person I was talking to understands that, in fact, bad economics and false teaching get along very well together. (laughs) They're, they're, They're synergistic. They're like mutually parasitical on one another. But what I find Mm -hmm. is that people think that an economic or a political interpretation of some of these passages, for some reason, they think that that's in competition with all of the doctrinal stuff that they learn, Mm -hmm. you know, in seminary or Bible college or whatever. And I would argue that it's the opposite. If you believe in the doctrine of the incarnation, if you really believe that, then all of these historical details become extremely important. You know, Jesus wasn't like floating over Galilee. You know, he wasn't like walking, <laughs> but he was like five feet off the ground and he didn't touch anything or whatever. He was fully in it, right? He was fully human. Um, you know, the creed says, like us in every way, except without sin. Um, he didn't just have a human body, human mind, which included his job. You know, when he incarnated, he incarnated as a tecton, as a worker. So he takes on, all, he takes it all on. So mm-hmm. if we really believe in the incarnation, then we're going to stop skimming over things like um, geographical details or occupational details, um, which mm-hmm. are actually just, they're every bit as important as the red letter stuff that he says. Mm. Well, so let me read a passage from the book that I think speaks to exactly what you just talked about. Economic interpretations uh, compete with and cancel out theological interpretation. That's, that is false. And that, that's something that uh, you definitely emphasize strongly in the intro. Um, I, I want to bring up another passage from your book, and I, I want to get your thoughts on people that do this, because what you said in, on page 15 is, a great deal of Christian commentary on economics is based on ideas that have been brought to the gospel text rather than drawn out of them. And I, I, I found that to be entirely true because there's so many people that seem to read socialism into absolutely everything that Jesus says, like, oh, that, that means he's a socialist and we should uh, be leading a socialist uh, thing or, or that like, you know, the church in Acts was the first socialist, uh, you know, community or something like that. What What do you say to some of that? And how do you make sure that you're not doing that, uh, bringing ideas and into the text rather than drawing from the text what Christ wants to say? I think the way you avoid that is mm-hmm. to read, there's a couple things you do. One, read the text very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, don't just read the text enough to get your little argument text, you know, uh, point, your, your, it's not an armory, right. To go mm-hmm. and get something. Oh, Jesus says it's easier for a rich man. To, uh, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. Right. Mm-hmm. Which she actually doesn't say that's misquoted, but that's, it's almost always misquoted that way. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, look at the different gospel accounts and, you know, look at the details of that, read it very, very carefully. And you, it just is not going to support what's imposed on it. Another would be, you know, Acts 2 through 4, where they do hold all things in common. But uh, later on in the encounter with Ananias and Sapphira, um, Peter makes clear that they didn't have to hold all things in common, that they could keep these things. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, having some basic understanding of maybe the grammar of New Testament Greek. 
that they mm-hmm. didn't sell all at once, but there was like an ongoing selling. It's an imperfect form. Um, so there's an ongoing selling as needs arise. Another thing would be to look at uh, the historical context. So first of all, um, they didn't sell at all. They mm-hmm. sold it piecemeal as was needed for, for sharing. So it wasn't a disposition of all property. It wasn't to <coughs> become propertyless for property for propertylessness sake. It is to sell an asset for a need. Uh, mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, it's voluntary. Peter made that quite clear. Number three, um, we already had a movement in place in Israel around that time that was an anti-temple movement. It was a, you know, a revolt against the temple elite and the economic exploitation of that elite, and that was the Essenes. Um, and they actually did have a communistic rule, um, but they contrast. Um, there for them. Getting rid of property was done all at once when you joined the Essenes, and it was a requirement, not a voluntary thing. So let's say that you're somebody who's sort of watching the early Christian community. You you see Jesus and his messianic movement, and then you see his followers. Given where what you would have seen politically and sociologically, you would have expected this movement to actually be a communist movement. You would have expected mandatory immediate sale of all property and put into a common purse. Um, And so what happens in Acts, actually, not only is it not mandatory um, and it's and it's not it's not total liquidation, it's ongoing, um, but it is against expectations in that this is different than the other similar movements, which actually did. You would have expected a commune. Because the biggest examples that we have at that time that had similar messages, you know, confronting the temple elite, you know, the temple is not really valid anymore, et cetera, that had the movements that were most like the Jesus movement actually did compel socialism as a condition of membership. And so the fact that the the movement under Peter did not compel that is actually very, very conspicuous. Now, that involves reading Stuff from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and not everyone has time to do that, and I understand that. Uh, but you know now, I just told you. <laughs> so maybe you didn't know that before, and if you read the book, you know, like there's you know, quotes that establish that. Josephus talks about it explicitly. So now you know, and it's and if you still hold to the idea that um, this is a, a socialist account, I think you're seriously, you know, you know enough now not to. Hmm. Well, let, let's go back to the scenes because uh, you you do talk about this quite a bit in the book about um, the temple elite and all of the sort of various abuses that they were imposing upon the people. Can you touch on that a little bit? Because at least for me, when I was reading about that, it, it wasn't entirely clear just from reading the gospels. Okay, what what were they doing? Why why was Jesus so harsh to these people? And I think you exposed a lot of what what they were doing specifically that was getting Jesus to be so angry at them and flipping over tables and so on. Well, what they were doing is they were ripping people off. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the whole temple system was essentially built on that, starting with the money changers. Um, mm. And this is, again, one of these detail things. So I understand this is hard work. I'm not, I'm not at all shaming to people mm-hmm. who don't know this, um, I, it's just okay. So it's not; these aren't like brilliant insights. Okay, I just spent 
you know, many hours just grinding through detail, Mm. right? And the detail is that in the Old Covenant, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Exodus, we're told about things like the temple tax, and we're told about things like the shekel. There's a temple shekel. Mm. And we know that the temple tax was a half shekel. We know how much a half shekel was um, because it's defined in relation to a becca. And it's also defined in relation to um, a drachma, if you look mm. at the Greek version of the mm. Old Testament Bible. So early on, uh, second or third century, there's a book called the Septuagint, where the rabbis translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Um, mm. Now, it, kind of, it was kind of an ongoing project. So we know how many drachmas were in the temple shekel. Therefore, we knew we know roughly how much silver you'd have to pay to pay the temple tax, right? Mm. So then what you can do is come into the New Testament. Again, I understand there's a lot of detail, but the information's there, right? Because mm. there's the incident where Peter uh, Peter pays the temple tax, you know, on behalf of Jesus, and he goes and finds a stodder, you know, mm. in the mouth of a fish. So you can work through all those details. I'll spare people working through all the details. I work them through in the book, and I also have an article that I've written recently. And let me just bottom line it. The shekel became twice as expensive under Second Temple Judaism as it had been originally in the Exodus, which mm-hmm. means that you had to pay twice as much pagan money to the money changers in order to pay your temple tax uh, and in order to buy sacrifices. So there was roughly a 100% markup um, that added no value whatsoever. It was pure ripoff. It was pure mm. um, exploitation. Um, and so once you get that, then you see Jesus getting angry at the money changers. And he, what does he say? You've made, the, you've made my father's house what? A den of robbers. Mm. Um, so they're robbing. <laughs> I mean, this is this such a stretch to say, oh, well, people have a bad attitude about money and they're greedy? Well, sure, they're greedy, but some people are greedy and rob and some people are greedy and don't rob. You know, someone can be greedy and go out there and sell, you know, an honest amount of, of uh, frozen yogurt, you know, and, mm-hmm. and get rich selling frozen yogurt. Or somebody can go out there and, you know, mix it with saw- sawdust or something like that. Um, and they can, they can cheat people to get rich. So the problem is that they were cheating people. That's what made them robbers. Um, mm. and, that's, and Jesus repeated this about robbers. Um, and we just kind of glide over that. Or we think, well, yeah, some people say that Jesus is against markets, right? Uh, FDR's second inaugural, first inaugural address, he talks about how money changes, you know, in the temple of democracy. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's talking against financial markets using this incident. Mm. And then he goes on into bases gold from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce. He's the money changer in the temple of democracy. Um, you know, not the people who, you know, and it even happened before because the Fed deflated, right? Mm-hmm. So the problem isn't markets trying to adjust to all this monetary manipula- you know, manipulation. They're doing their best. Uh, the problem is the people who can actually, the money changers are the people who have the monopoly power. Um, and mm-hmm. that's central banks um, and the treasury department. So once you see that, um, then it just puts every transaction inside the temple was in shekels. Mm. Almost every transaction outside the temple 
was in drachma, pagan money. So in mm. order to move from the world of your pagan money to anything inside the temple, you've got to go through the money changers and their monopoly. And what they're, what, what's happened is there's essentially price inflation. Instead mm. of debasing the drachma, right, they make the shekel too heavy. This is, doesn't Amos even say you've made the shekel heavy, um, mm. which means that there's a relative debasement of the pagan money. So it's interesting. The pagan money's more honest. I mean, you mm. see over history, it goes from maybe eight ounces of silver per drachma to seven ounces of silver. I mean, there's a little debasement, but the mm -hmm. real manipulation is the temple shekel. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, did you see that article maybe two, three weeks ago where they found a new silver coin was unearthed, um, you know, in Jerusalem? Oh, are you familiar mm -hmm. with that story? Mm -mm. Yeah, they found a silver coin, I think, from like 65, 66 A.D., um, and a lot of people said, oh, wow, this is, you know, hey, we thought they did coins. Now we found a coin um, that they did. This is after uh, the, um, you know, the Pharisee, the nationalists, the zealots took over the temple. And I found that interesting because it's a confirmation of you know, Josephus and history. But what I found more interesting is that it's, it's 14 ounces, mm. which means that it was a crooked shekel. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, what Josephus is saying and what the biblical text implies is confirmed that you had to buy twice as much shekel for the temple um, as, as what the Bible actually would require in Exodus. Um, and what, the other thing that's interesting about that is that's clearly a ripoff that's going on when the Herodians and the Sadducees are in favor in the temple. But this is a, a charge, but this is after the takeover. You know, after mm. the populist takeover and everyone stormed the Capitol and, they, you know, the guy <laughs> with the horns, you know, and the buckskins came in and they took over. And you know what? They still kept the crooked shekel. You know, for <laughs> all of their complaints against the ruling class, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, so the point is that the entire temple was, was essentially every transaction involved a, a, an extraction of money based on unjust weights and measures. And that is really central to understanding Jesus's confrontations with the temple and with the temple elite. Hmm. Yeah, weights and measures, indeed. If I if I'm not mistaken, shekel is a Hebrew word meaning some sort of weight. So it's uh, you know, it means it, weight. It's very much yeah. It, it, it's very much in that in that uh, spirit there. Also, um, many you, many tekelu farsum, right? I mean, it's. <laughs> That the tackles some. I, I, I mean, there's a linguistic connection there. Basically, mm -hmm. weight. So, how much weight? Two, mm. two drachma or four drachma? Well, mm. it depends on what whether you're reading the Torah or mm -hmm. or you're under the Herodian elite. They changed it. Mm. Mm. I see. They changed the standards for their own benefit, not unlike what they do with the dollar today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's say you got a situation where. You know, four quarters is supposed to get you a dollar, and then someone changes the rules. You need eight quarters mm. to get a dollar. Mm. That's that's what happened. Mm. Mm. Um, it's uh, almost like uh, the exchange rate kept varying based on whatever they wanted, uh, which is honestly what a lot of other central banks besides the United States do, do in order to sort of keep the um, their currency from debasing further against the dollar, something like that. Right, right. Yeah, so it, they had a set um, exchange rate. Um, mm. So, 
And I don't have any problem with set exchange rates, right? Robert mm-hmm. Mundell argued for a set exchange rate between, say, the euro and the dollar, the idea mm-hmm. being it's pegged to one another, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that only works if you like let the market determine the exchange rate and you mm-hmm. both have honest money. So they're mm-hmm. set in relation to one another without compulsion, mm-hmm. right? So when you, so you can have a peg where you say, all right, I'm not going to value the, I'm not going to vary the value of the dollar. And then Hong Kong says, all right, well, we're not going to vary the value of the Hong Kong dollar, right? Mm. So that's an honest peg um, in that, in that if the market is determining the exchange rate and one of them starts rising against the other, then you say, oh, hold on a second. You're debasing. All right. Okay. We'll pull some money out of the system. I mean, the gold standard was essentially doing that in relation to the value of gold, right? It's pegged mm. to gold. Or you can do it pegged to other currencies or actually for a long time, the major currencies were pegged to gold. So they were automatically pegged to one another. But mm. what happens is some countries, they debase, but then they say, oh, no, no. Um, the, you know, We are telling you what the exchange rate is uh, between, you know, uh, uh, between the bolivar and the dollar and any other exchange rate is illegal. Mm. Right. So what they're doing is they're hiding their sin by making it illegal um, to trade at the actual market value. Um, and mm. then when that happens, you get black market exchange rates with, that express the real value. Um, so mm. what they did here is this was a government set exchange rate. Um, mm. And then they could do what they want and people had to put up with it. Mm. Well, so. Getting into that a little bit, they're they're obviously abusing the monopoly power that they have with this temple. And you you were talking earlier about you know some of these resistance movements that were saying, well, the temple's no longer the authority, and so on. They were trying to uh, figure out a way around all of this. Um, and and you talk about in the book, um, you know, part of this why it got so corrupt was because of the political leadership and you uh and you know you rightly point out that Jesus was condemning their leadership as being corrupt um and you know you you have a lot of uh you know passages in there about like what what the requirements for leaders should be and so on so um what sort of leaders should Christians be looking for um politically and so on because that that's definitely a question I think a lot of us have in this day and age with all that's going on. Well, the biblical qualifications tended to focus on fearing God and hating dishonest gain. Mm. It's amazing how much um, consistency there is in the Bible about dishonest gain and Mm. getting wealthy in office Mm -hmm. as the disqualifying character flaw for political leaders. So I think that that's really important um, in the sense that the Bible is going to warn us against the things that most need to be warned against. And although I think it's good that politicians be wise and policy competent and monogamous and have personal character and all those, I mean, you want all the good things for your leaders. It's fascinating how when the Bible sort of summarizing what you don't want in a leader, it's somebody who will use their power to ex- extract wealth from other people 
and use it for himself and give it to his friends. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when, when um, Moses, um, Jethro gives the, the, the father-in-law of, Mo- of Moses, gives him advice about choosing leaders. And then Moses reiterates that with some modifications in Deuteronomy, there's a focus on dishonest gain. The warning about Saul is he'll take your wealth and he'll share it uh, with his, with his friends, um, with his officers. Um, it, you know, the, the problem, one of the problems, main problem with, um, say one of the main problems with Solomon is his accumulation of wealth as a king, mm-hmm. right? He gets wealthy as a king. I think that's problematic. Deuteronomy tells us that kings shouldn't get wealthy, um, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. So when we come to the rich young ruler in the gospels, if we just start all over brand new, as mm-hmm. if the gospels just kind of don't have anything to do with what came before, and we see Jesus have a confrontation with a rich young ruler. If we're bringing, if we're seeing Jesus as in continuity with the rest of the Bible, then we wouldn't be surprised at all that there's a confrontation over wealth, because that's what rulers. That's the main temptation of rulers. Um, mm. But of course, we read that passage backwards. We read that passage through Marxist presuppositions, um, or Pietistic presuppositions. Let me loop back to that in a second. So we already think we know what the passage is about. If you're a lefty, you think that this, the passage is Jesus is against wealth, which means Jesus is against capitalism, right? Mm. If you're kind of standard issue evangelical, it's like, oh, well, Jesus knew that he was an idolater of money in his heart. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the reason that Jesus tells him to give it all away, but doesn't tell other people to give it all away is because of the attitude the man had in his heart towards money. Even though None of the accounts in the Gospels tell us anything about Jesus looking into the man's heart. And sometimes mm-hmm. they do. Some, the Gospels tell us that Jesus discerns what people were mm-hmm. thinking, but there's nothing like that. See, we're reading in whatever we've heard in our sermons. So if you're in like a progressive, you know, left-wing mainline church, you're programmed to look for socialism here. If you're mm-hmm. in evangelical, you know, kind of standard church, whereas everything's about heart, Mm-hmm. Not about the world, not about redeeming of the world, not about economics, uh, no social message, then he's just greedy, right? Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is saying, don't be greedy. But if you read the Bible forward, you already know that the thing that rulers do is they rip people off. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's the background. And so then let's say you're reading really carefully and you read, say, Mark's account. and they talk about the commandments. You know, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commandments, right? Uh, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Wait, do not defraud? <laughs> right? Well, why is that there? Well, if you don't mm. know the Ten Commandments, you won't know that do not defraud is not one of the Ten Commandments. So mm. why is why is do not defraud there? Um, it's confusing. And you, what you find is it's an early text, but then some of the cop, some of the text copied afterwards, it's gone. In other words, mm-hmm. some of these copyists looked at that and said, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Must be a mistake. And they, they took it out. When what they should have done is to look and say, this looks like it doesn't belong here. What am I missing? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to erase it. I'm going to look more carefully. And I think the argument is quite strong that the reason Jesus added do not defraud to the list is because the man was defrauding. (laughs) That was the business model. 
How do I know that? Because I don't know, roughly 20 years later, depending on when you think these books were written, Jesus's younger brother, James wrote a book from Jerusalem and he was talking to poor Christians. And he said, do not rich men defraud you Hmm. and drag you before the judgment seats. And he uses exactly the same Greek word there. So James is not saying, hey, some rich people, some people, some members of the Herodian elite defraud. He's saying this is emblematic of that whole class. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, without Jesus's omnipotence already from the get-go, you can see why he would confront the man about wealth because that was the business model. Yeah, you know, when you meet mm-hmm. a mafioso, you don't say, now, did you get that money on? You know the business <laughs> model is crooked, right? So mm-hmm. Jesus, I, to, to me, it's perfectly obvious that Jesus is saying, give the money back to the poor that you took it from. Mm-hmm. So it's not redistribution. It's unredistribution. Uh, the mm. rich young ruler already redistributed it up to himself. Now, mm. he's, now he's supposed to unredistribute. He's supposed to give it back. Same as, as Zacchaeus, the tax collector, another political official. Mm. Well, that, that's uh, very interesting with respect to leaders and their temptation to get rich off of their position, which uh, which we're seeing all over the place. Uh, but but that's the main argument I, I think that you're making with respect to what Jesus is saying about these people that they they really are sinning as uh, through their position, um, and you know leaders are at least supposed to have higher standards and not lower. And what what they seem to be doing is they're abusing their position to kind of get dishonest gain. Do do you see a lot of that sort of happening today? And is that a danger that a lot of churches are having to confront, or is it, is this something that isn't that much of a problem? Maybe it applies to political leaders, or is it uh, like what wh- what are your thoughts on how this applies today? I think there's um, kind of two categories here that Jesus is dealing with in terms of exploitation. One of them are, is people refers to I think people who have political power, mm. um, and this can be a little confusing because we think of like the temple as religion, right? Mm. But it's under the high priest and the high priest was appointed by King Herod, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So in essence, it's almost like, you know, in our modern politics, we have like a county government and then we have like a airport authority, Mm -hmm. right? And we have a sewer authority, right? Mm -hmm. And they're separate, but they're ultimately controlled by the politicians. Um, So this is like the religion authority, you know, Herod can kill a can't kill a, off a high priest or depose one, and you know, put another one in his place. Um, and I think, using the analogy, what had happened is the temple had be you know was supposed to be more like the airport authority, became more like the sewer authority. Um, mm-hmm. It became very very corrupt. Um, so, but it had power. The high priest had arrogated to himself, with the help of the lawyers and the traditions, the authority to compel the payment of the temple tax. There's no coercive element mentioned in the Torah for the temple tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this, the, the, the passage seems to treat the temple tax as something paid once to build the temple, right? You pay the temple tax to build the temple, right? It's a mm-hmm. little bit like um, around here. I, I, I live near Johnstown um, and there was the Johnstown flood. What was that? 1910 or 1920 or something like that. And uh, state imposed a tax to rebuild Johnstown. Well, 2021, we still have the Johnstown flood tax. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and some people have argued, well, it worked. We haven't had another flood. Uh, you know, Johnstown was rebuilt. Um, 
So they built the temple. They turned it into an annual tax. Um, so mm-hmm. it was really something they would wet their beacon. Um, and, you know, this is mentioned, I forget what the source, it might be Josephus or Philo, I'll have to look it up, or one of the uh, uh, other Jewish authorities where the high priest would send people out with sticks to beat up people who wouldn't pay their temple tax. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it essentially had become coercive. But there's also voluntary giving. So I think the story of the widow's might, I think, is really instructive here because the widow puts, you know, her last two pennies, her lep, lep, lepton, lepti, I guess, I mean, mm-hmm. on, lepta, I think. Um, she puts her last two lepta, um, you know, in, into the, uh, into the uh, temple collection box. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, I think this passage is really horribly misused. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it's almost like a favorite go-to passage for fundraising, I, you know, for televangelists, <laughs> for example, there's some people you give to them and they'll send you the widow's might. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that they really need to read the context because if I'm thinking of Mark's version, although there's some continuity here with Luke, Jesus, let's just get a running start. Jesus mm-hmm. says the woe against the Pharisees. He says, in Mark, Mark 10, you are devourers of widows' houses. Mm. Immediately after that, we have the story of the widow giving away her last two pennies. Mm. Um, immediately after that, Jesus storms out of the temple, um, gets up, walks out of the temple in such a way that his disciples chase after him and say, look at these beautiful stones. And Jesus mm-hmm. says, look at these stones. Not one will be left standing upon another. He predicts mm-hmm. the destruction of the temple. So if you just pull the witch, the, the, the widow's might story out of the middle, you pull it out from between devourers, the, you know, you're a devourer of widows' houses, and the place where the widow just put this money is going to be destroyed within a generation, uh, then you're going to miss that, you know, this is not mainly a generosity of the widow story. This is mainly a corrupt temple story. Now he does praise her. She Mm. is, she, she's been convinced someone has talked her into believing that this is what God wants her to do. Right. Mm. So she thinks that's what God wants her to do. So she does it, but whoa, literally woe unto anyone who convinced some old lady that her last social security check you know, should uh, should be used to uh, pay for, you know, 30 seconds on the uh, private airplane. Um, mm. Yeah. So I think that this is largely a negative story. And by the way, it's, he doesn't mainly even praise her that much. It's she has you know, what she's given more than them, than these other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, half of it is dissing them. And of mm. course, the rich people who are putting the money in, they're getting it back. Right. They put the money in and then they come back and they're getting interest and they've got, they, you know, they've got deposits with the temple or they're taking bribes. I mean, they're living off of the temple system. So, mm. I mean, kind of think of it like, let's say I'm a mega church or a televangelist and oh, here, here, I'm going to give a hundred thousand dollars. I'm putting it into, into the, into the collection plate. Yeah, but you get it back. <laughs> You know, the, someone from outside who puts in $100,000, that's a different story. Or somebody who follows that example and says, this is my last $100. This is my food bill. 
Mm. Um, and uh, But if you send that ask $100, we'll send you the widow's mite. So I think that maybe applies more to church, um, mm. not, all, not to all the church, I mean, um, but to some segments, the religious manipulation taker strategy. There's a political coercion taker strategy, and there's a religious manipulation taker strategy. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I want to pull on something that you just mentioned uh, kind of casually, but I, I, I want to read a quote from the book again. On page 143, you say, the temple was also a bank and not only a bank, but a bank that played a key role in a system created by the legal scholars, administered by the temple elite, and used by wealthy elites to extract wealth from the poor. Can you describe this temple bank system? Because I don't think a lot of people understood uh, or understand today that the temple was actually a bank. Yeah, with like $700 million worth of gold in it. Um, mm. It was the main bank. Um, so it had rooms in th- inside. Um, mm. uh, Thessaros, Thessaroy. I forget whether it's masculine or neuter, but a thesaurus um, mm-hmm. is a treasure room. You know, we have a book called a, thes- a thesaurus, mm-hmm. which is a treasure of words, right? Mm-hmm. A treasure of synonyms. Well, that comes from a Greek word, which is a treasure room or a treasure house. So the temple had money on deposit from the elite in these rooms. Um, these, uh, I'll have to look it up. Thes- let's just say thesaurus for now. I'm not sure my mm-hmm. hand is off uh, so they had um, they had these rooms. It's interesting when Jesus talks to mentions the rich young ruler. He says, "You know, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have Thessaros uh, in heaven." Mm-hmm. Using the word, we it's translated as treasure, but that's mm-hmm. somewhat interpretive. It's actually you will have a treasure room in heaven. In other mm-hmm. words, in the temple there are these rooms where the money is put on deposit. If you sell all you have and give to the poor, you will be withdrawing from your thesaurus in the temple, but you will be um, setting up an account in the thesaurus in heaven, in the heavenly temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had this money on deposit. So why were people putting money on deposit in the temple? Well, I mean, one reason is just it's a big stone building, so there's security, right? But there's something else going on here, which is there was a kind of a religious workaround. So you probably, I'm sure you were. Um, uh, that there was a rule in the Torah, which is that there was debt forgiveness every seven years Mm -hmm. um, and another kind of forgiveness every 50 years. Okay. 49 and then 50. Let's just focus on the Shemitah, the release of debt. Um, So after seven years, if if you owed me money, I'd have to forgive that debt. We get to the seventh year and it's wiped out, right? You don't, you don't pay me. Um, We can argue about maybe you just don't pay that year or maybe you never have to pay again. I think the main interpretation is it's canceled, right? So, um, all right. So I, I might not like that, right? Because I want my money, right? Mm-hmm. But God tells me I can't have it. The, the The contract is invalid past seven years. Well, the lawyers come up with a fascinating, and the rabbis come up with a fascinating little workaround. They say, well, wait, it says to individuals that you can't collect the debt. But it doesn't say that about the temple. So what you can do is you can sell your debt to the temple. Um, And, you know, people would, you would know what I mean by factoring receivables. 
You know what that means? I don't. Okay. Yeah, um, it's, it's accounting talk. So like, let's say you've got accounts receivable. Someone owes you money. You can collect it from them or you can sell it to a bill collector, right? Mm. Uh, and then it's not your issue anymore. You sell it and then the bill collector buys it from you and then they collect it. So essentially the temple becomes the bill collector. People, you get to the, you get to the end of the sixth year and then you sell that paper to the temple. Well, why is it worth anything, right? The debt's um, collect, you know, uh, canceled. Nope. When you sell it to the temple, the debt isn't canceled. They can keep collecting it uh, according mm-hmm. to this rule called a prosbol in Greek. Um, so what was, what was happening is that um, people who were lenders were holding it for six years um, or maybe five years and then along with the Shemitah, and then they sell it to the temple. So the temple became the, the debt collector and they were violating the spirit of Torah, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is it's supposed to be a relief to the poor. Well, how's it a relief to the poor if they're getting, you know, leaned on by the temple instead of by, you know, some tax collector or some thug? It's no, it's not a relief to the poor, right? I mean, it didn't make sense in terms of the context, but since it doesn't say the temple can't collect it, so it's clearly one of these traditions where, you know, like you're going against the spirit of the law. So the temple became the chief exploitative um, agency in some sense. It was, it, was, it, 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 it was complicit in the violating of Torah. Um, and so it was hated <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and that's kind of what's going on with the money in the temple. So a lot of it is people are just putting deposits there, but a lot of it is that the temple is actually, it's kind of like a central bank. Uh, it's kind of like a central bank that's also a regular bank and that it takes deposits, but it's also kind of like a loan shark um, mm. that is is kind of a little like a little bit like Scrooge, but you know with muscle. Um, so it had become exploitative. So no surprise that Jesus is constantly denouncing the temple and predicting it'll be destroyed within a generation, which it was. Mm. Well, that that brings up something uh, about debt that I found really interesting as well in, in the sense that in your view, uh, like what, what, what Jesus is saying about debt and all of this stuff, um, there, there is sort of like a forgiveness of debt that Jesus is preaching that these, uh, you know, political elites, the, the temple priests and so on, they, they really didn't like because it was, uh, threatening their monetary existence almost. Um, can you explain like what the actual teaching on that would be? Uh, you mean for Jesus or, you know, for the rest of the Bible or, or actually the yeah. same, right? Again, yeah, I, uh, it, well, I, I, I want to know more about like the actual teaching from Jesus about that and how Christians should think about that basically. Well, if you start off with Jesus, I think you're making a mistake because Jesus mm-hmm. didn't start off with Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Jesus, you know, identified himself with the God uh, who's mentioned in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus doesn't come along and say, hey, um, I'm God. I'm the first you've heard from God. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I'm God. I'm showing up. You probably haven't heard of me. Um, no, instead he places himself very much in continuity with the God of the Bible. And when Jesus appears on the scene, the Bible is what we call the Old Testament. There, there's no other Bible, right? Mm. 
So we would once. So once you're there, then you you're maybe a little less likely to say, "Oh, when Jesus says debt, what he really means is sin," and when he says, "You know, release debt," what he really means is forgive sin. Um, so we'll spiritualize it. When in fact, if you see him as in continuity with the Bible as the Messiah, um, as someone who comes to fulfill the law, then you would fully expect him to denounce ways in which the elite are violating Torah. Um, and one of the chief ways they're violating Torah financially is they were ignoring the Shemitah or debt release laws. Um, if we don't do that, then we will spiritualize away um, anything he says about debt. Um, now, but so does that mean it has nothing to do with forgiveness of sins? No, it doesn't mean that. Um, in, in the period of Second Temple Judaism, financial forgiveness and moral forgiveness were closely intertwined. If we, mm-hmm. if we were talking to someone at that time and we said, well, you know, what do you think about, you know, forgiveness of sins and what do you think about forgiveness of debts and, you know, uh, uh, you know, those two different topics, I think they'd be confused. What do you mean two different topics? Because from their standpoint, they were living in exile. They weren't in control of their nation. That had started with the Babylonian exile. And Jeremiah says that not following the seven-year rules were the reason for the exile. Hmm. So God was holding their sin against them um, and not forgiving their sin. And the sign of that was that their debts were not being forgiven. And the other sign of that was that they were captivity to the pagan nations. What they believed is that the Messiah would come. And there were two versions. One thought that there'd be one Messiah. Another version thought there'd be two a political and a new high priest. The, they fully expected the Messiah, um, whichever one you're talking about, but especially I think the high priest, uh, to forgive debts. So the high priest of the temple was corrupt. God will send another high priest. He will forgive debts, forgive our sins, and end the exile. That was all one thing for them. Um, so... We, we separate them. They didn't. And they had good reason to relate them because, again, Jeremiah associated that. And, and remember, then later on, Daniel talks about this, this Babylonian captivity. He says, you know, Jeremiah said it's 70 years, but it's really 70 times seven years, hmm. 490 years, 70 times seven, 70 times seven, right? So you're exiled for 70 years because you didn't do the Shemitah rules, but really you're still disobeying. So it's going to be seven of those 70s, mm. right? Um, then Jesus comes along and, and in the context of forgiveness says, well, you have to forgive 70 times seven. Oh, that means a lot. Nobody alive then would have just thought 70 times seven means a lot. Everybody was, you know, just like we think about 666 and 1948 and all our prophetic stuff. Everybody was so excited about 70 times seven, 490 years. It's coming soon. It's almost here. The, you know, the debts will be forgiven and the exile will end just like Daniel said after 70 times seven. So Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven. And then he says, it's like this. And then tells a story about debt forgiveness in which a man who is under an emperor, under a great king is forgiven. Um, temporarily, but then doesn't forgive the debts under him. And then he's handed over to the torturers, 
right? Mm. So if we just see that parable as coming out of nowhere, rather than in the context of the 70 times seven, and we see it as only sin forgiveness and having nothing to do with finance, even though it is a debt parable, then we're going to miss what's really going on here. That's Israel. God forgave Israel. He said, all right, you didn't keep the Shemitah rule. I'm going to forgive you. And then what they do, they turn around and still shook the poor saying, you owe me, right? Mm. God forgave them, you know, 10,000 talents. Uh, and by the way, here's a, an, another interesting thing. You read scholars on this and they're really confused by this. 10,000 talents, that's huge. No, Why mm. is Jesus telling this crazy story? It's clearly an exaggeration. Nobody would have been in a position to forgive 10,000 talents. It's not, no business person, nothing in Jesus's experience would have looked like 10,000 talents. Well, if you think of it as a private transaction only, yes. But if you put it in a macroeconomic scale, it makes perfect sense. It's a macroeconomic number. You know, it's a, it's, um, it's about, uh, it's six years of the, uh, of my estimate of the GDP under Herod and Antipas. So it makes sense as a kind of macroeconomic national number. And mm. given the fact that we were just given the 70 times seven, which is a nation waiting to be a nation told to forgive debts, then to me, it's pretty clear that Jesus is doing exactly what a rabbi would do saying, keep the, keep the Torah. Hmm. Indeed. Well, so interesting way to uh, think about this stuff. And I, I, I'm sure for a lot of my listeners, uh, even the Christian ones, this this is kind of like a little bit of a shock. Um, but I, oh, I and, something else about this debt thing. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, within a generation, you know what happens? There's a debt revolt. Mm. They finished building the temple. 64 AD, big, yeah, big celebration. We built the temple, 15,000 people get laid off. So we have a nice Austrian business cycle bust. <laughs> um, and then the zealots go murder the high priest's family and burn down the rec the public records building. And Josephus says that he, he, they did that to curry favor with the Poloid, with the many debtors. So mm. you get a debt revolt, you, the debt builds up, the, 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 the bubble burst, you get a debt revolt. Um, and that is part of an escalating cycle of violence. Um, and within five years after that, the Romans came, come in and say, enough already. We're going to take control. Um, and then not one stone was, you know, left upon another. And all those Thessaroi, those, those buildings filled with gold were taken. And by the way, you know how in that parable, you know, the, the, the man who um, didn't forgive the elite, Israel's elite, you know, they're handed over to the torture. What do the Romans do? They heard a rumor that the Jewish elite had been swallowing their gold to, to um, you know, to sneak it out of Jerusalem. So when people were, were sneaking out of Jerusalem, the Romans would cap capture them and cut them open looking for the gold. They were handed over to the torturers um, because they're, because the gold that they hoarded against Torah, um, the, the gold that they hoarded, um, that the, because they wouldn't forgive debts, now led to their destruction and their and their painful death. Mm. Wow, uh, so, such a like it, it gives so much more color to uh, you know what we read in the scripture because uh, all these details about what's going on uh, because we we we've seen these stories like too many times almost. And 
a lot of the details sort of like escape without us really questioning why. And I, I appreciate um, how your book sort of puts that in context and helps us to understand what what's actually going on and what the sort of socioeconomic reality of that time was. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, the, 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 well, go ahead. Every, you, the, you, the religious conversation that your listeners have been told mm-hmm. to have will rebel against this, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it is shocking. All I would say is just look at the details. And, mm-hmm. and if you've got a better interpretation, not familiarity versus unfamiliarity does not matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is what lines up with the details of the text. I've done my best. I spent five years on it. Really, I spent 35 years on it, but five years deep in on it. Um, I've marshaled together a lot of detailed information. I could be wrong, but don't tell me I'm wrong because this is unfamiliar or because it's not what you've been taught. Get in there and look at that text and tell me why Jesus says, do not defraud. Mm. Tell me why when he confronts the money changers, he especially confronts the dove merchants. The dove sacrifice was for the poor, which and the poor were therefore the most economically exploited. Explain to me all uh, the better explanation of all these details, and I'd be uh, you know happy to change my view and and take the take the other explanation. Hmm. Well, this is a Bitcoin show, so I, I think I, I my listeners would kill me if I didn't ask you at least a little bit about what do you think of Bitcoin as sort of like a more moral currency? Do you do you see it that way, or like what what's generally your I guess I'm also asking about the current monetary system and its exploitation, but what are your thoughts on that from a biblical standpoint? Well, I just read Thank God for Bitcoin, and I found (laughs) it to be a a very good book. Um, Mm. A lot of my views um, here are influenced by some friends of mine who are in this zone. Um, Mm. So uh, uh, George Gilder, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, would be one, Peter Thiel. Um, so that's kind of my crowd, um, Mm. which is certainly crypto and blockchain maximalist, maybe Mm. mixed on whether it's Bitcoin or not, or maybe Mm. how about open-minded, right? Mm. On whether it's Bitcoin or not. I'm, I'm a maximalist in the sense of, I want it to work. Mm. Um, I don't have much hope in the political system. Um, like when you asked what kind of leaders should we choose? And I guess I, my first impulse was, I don't really care. I don't trust any of them. <laughs> um, I, I want the imposition uh, of the, the, I want the limitation of their power to be imposed on them from the outside. Mm. And I think our best hope for that is um, the, the world of the cryptocurrencies. And Bitcoin mm. has that first mover advantage um, and it has the market share advantage. Right. Um, and so, so, so a lot of times when people say, what do you think about Bitcoin? I mean, I don't know what they're asking me half the time. Right. So <laughs> people say, well, as a Christian, what do you think about Bitcoin? And it's like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean, do I think Bitcoin is sinful money because drug dealers use it and therefore we ought to sin screen it out? Do you mean that? No. Do you mean, is it the mark of the beast? Uh, so I ought to avoid it. No. Um, it's kind of the opposite of the mark of the beast. I mean, the mark of the beast, we can talk about what that's talking about, 
But in the sort of standard left behind evangelical prophetic scenario, you've got a global currency under the control of a global dictator. Well, mm. crypto is the opposite of that, isn't it? Right? Um, mm. You know, it would it would be the 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 escape from that. Now, I'm I'm not hanging my hat on any particular prophetic scenario, but for the people who are worried that this is the six 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 money, you know, I would say if you're worried about six 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 money, that's all the more reason to look at cryptos as the alternative because they don't have central control. Do you mean do I like Bitcoin at this price? You know, I, I so I don't know exactly know what the conversation is. To me, it's an investment. It's a bet on the future utility of this as a as an as an alternate currency. So there was a, there was a, a, an article recently of the Gospel Coalition, which I thought was terrible. What should Christians <laughs> think about Bitcoin? And it was like, I mean, the, the person who wrote it, as far as I can tell, they didn't know anything about the premise of Bitcoin. Mm. Um, you know, they 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 straw manned it rather than steel manned it, right? It's like, well, it's not money because we don't use it as money. Therefore, it doesn't have any real use. Therefore, it's gambling. The premise of Bitcoin is that it will be money in the future. Maybe that's all. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's right. I don't know the future, but that's the value premise. So don't tell me that it doesn't have a value premise. You can tell me that the value premise isn't proven yet, but don't tell me that there, money is utility. That's what it's always been. If hmm. this why if this widely becomes used as a currency, by definition, it has utility. And by definition, therefore, it has value. And people are looking for an escape hatch from this incredible amount of debasement and manipulation. So I'm pulling for it. Mm. Um, so that's, so that's just my opinion and I can mm. get into this more, but let me, let me kind of bring this together with mm. the conversation we just had about the book. Okay. Mm. Which is that we didn't talk much about Galilee. We talked about what was wrong with Judea, mm. but Jesus wasn't from Judea. I mean, it was from Bethlehem for a short space of time. Right. But you know, grew up in mm. Galilee Galilee was a decentralized society. Um, and I just talked to my friend, David Finnessy, who's probably the leading authority on the archaeology of Galilee in the Second Temple period in the world. He's edited the two major books on this subject that are up to, up to date, right? Uh, like mm -hmm. maybe four or five years ago, because we know so much more than we did 30 or 40 years ago. And what he said is one of the really interesting things, you have some old books about this, but not that much. One of the really interesting things about the culture that Jesus comes from, Galilee, is it's fairly decentralized. It's a village culture. You have some cities, but the cities are really kind of like central trading hubs for production that's taking place in the villages. But there's something else really interesting going on that when which uh, in Galilee was really different than other places. You have an extensive network. Let's just stop on that word, network. You have an extensive network of paths and roads. So the map, I've seen like the, like the people drawing maps. You see all these like intersecting lines in Galilee. All of these, 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 instead of having to go over mountains or all the rest of it, lower Galilee is kind of flat. You know, mm. upper Galilee is hilly. That's hillbilly territory. But, but where Jesus grows up, it's physically kind of flat. It's socially kind of flat, you know, decentralized, and it's got lots and lots of passable roads, goat paths, etc. And so people could easily move from village to village. And so news moved very, very quickly around Galilee. 
And since on the other one side, you've got Tyre and Sidon, which is connected to the world of the Mediterranean. On the other side, you've got the Decapolis and then off into Parthia and the old world of the Babylonian and Persian empires and a road going in between. It was a major information interchange. And it's interesting. My friend, uh, Dr. Finnessy said, this is like the social network of the first century. Mm. And I'm thinking, isn't that fascinating? What I think is that God in his providence put Jesus in a network society, village-based, where you dealt with issues before the village elders, where there was attestation, you know, by the mouth of one or two witnesses. And Jesus takes that village culture, that that social network culture, where someone tells a story and someone else says, well, I heard a different story. And then they, you know, you walk on one of these paths and you say, well, what really happened here? Oh, well, Pilate attacked. Oh, I heard it was Herod. No, it was Pilate. Oh, okay. So Pilate attacked. And then the stories kind of get worked out. And you got this news network where they're attesting to one another. And then Jesus launches a kingdom. And what does he do? If somebody does something wrong, what are you going to do? You're going to go talk to that person. And if they don't listen to you, you're going to take another person. And if they don't listen to you, you're going to take it to the church. And Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is, I don't want to push this too far. I I know you'll probably want me to push it (laughs) a little Mm -hmm. more. I want to hold back here a little bit. That, that God the Father put Jesus in the context of decentralization and peer-to-peer relations so that he learned a culture which he then universalized in the form of the early Christian church and basically said, this system is going to go viral around the globe where you're going to compare to each other. And if you think somebody did something wrong, you take a witness and then you attest and you test it. And if he still denies it, then you take it to the church. Um, not top down at all. Now the church became top down pretty quickly after, but bottom up peer to peer. And I don't think that just God could have put him in. God could have put Jesus in Beijing mm. and, and Jesus would have learned how top down systems work, right? He could have put him in Jerusalem. He could have put him in Rome, but instead he placed them in one of the places in the world that had one of the most decentralized social systems of the ancient world. And then and Jesus learns that because, yes, as he has a human nature, not just divine, he's human nature. He learns that and he turns it into a movement that goes out there and changes the world. So I think whether crypto people or Internet people or decentralized people, whether they know it or not, I think the vast majority of them don't know it. Every time they try to democratize knowledge and decentralize power, they're doing no pagan society ever tried to do that. They're trying to create technologically a model of the world that they got from Jesus, whether they knew it or not, and that he got from the Galilee that his father placed him in. So when they're building that, they might be atheists, but they're still, they're they're acting like Galileans, even though they don't believe in the Galilean. So I think that Silicon Valley, very secular place, but it really, and especially now with the emergence of blockchain and peer-to-peer, it's a very Jesusian Galilean social vision, whether they know where it came from or not. Wow, very inspiring words, especially for people like me that work on the Bitcoin stuff. So um, I I think what you're saying is that uh, this model of bottom-up, peer-to-peer, decentralized networks is very Christian at its core. Yes, and nobody else was doing it. The pagans, what did Jesus say? What do the Gentiles do? They lord it over one another. He's making a universal statement. And even the little Jewish movements like the Essenes, 
Well, they drop out and they're brothers, but there's a boss, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's just like the boss of his own little community, but there's a boss. Mm. In the Christian community, Jesus is the only boss, mm. right? There's only one Lord. He said, don't call anyone rabbi. You only have one rabbi, me. Mm. Now, I'm not saying you can never call anyone rabbi or father. That's you know That might just be sort of hyperbole. But in terms of the social network, nobody – I don't know anybody in the history of the world who ever said, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to lord it over one another. We're going to serve one another, and then we're going to compare to each other. We're going to correct one another on a peer-to-peer basis. That's, <laughs> that's unique in the history of the world as far as I know. And now we have technology that – allows us to actually do that algorithmically. We didn't have enough processing power to do that before. Mm-hmm. Oh, again, very inspiring, especially for people like me. Um, so uh, th- this time has absolutely flown by and we're nearing the end of the time that we've scheduled. So I do want to uh, give you a chance to sort of talk about some of your projects and stuff. Uh, where can people find you? What are you working on these days? And, um, you know, uh, so on. Oh boy, I'm working on so many things. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, mm. So uh, I uh, I write over at uh, the Christian Post's business page, mm. um, and um, so that's something that's kind of new that that's growing. Um, I, you know, a lot of people just find me on social media. You know, I'm mm. um, again, it's not as peer to peer as they promised, um, but. <laughs> There's still some decentralization there. Um, so people kind of uh, look me up there. Um, I do some guest preaching from time to time. And, you know, uh, I'm doing a lot of analysis now having to do with inflation. Um, and I'm planning to do more with um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Um, not because I didn't think early on that they were interesting, but I think the reality of debasement uh, and debt has now made them a great deal more relevant than they were before. So that's something I I'm uh, planning to uh, get into more. I, I got, I've got so many projects going, Jimmy, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, so I also do, I do a podcast. I'm going to interview you on the pod. You just interviewed me meeting mm-hmm. of minds podcast, meeting of minds, um, Boyer, Jerry Boyer, you can find that. Um, and, uh, so I'd like you to be a guest on that. I also do a podcast for Christian Post at Edify. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd love to have more of the blockchain crypto conversation over there because I think the Christian conversation about money and the Christian conversation about cryptocurrencies really needs to be improved. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. What's your Twitter handle? Jerry Lee my dad was a rock and roll fan. Jerry Lee Boyer, B-O-W-Y-E-R, B-O-W-Y-E-R. Don't forget the W. So Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jimmy. God bless. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or on the Bitcoin Native Financial Services Partner, Learn more at Unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Jerry Boyer can be found at at Jerry Lee Boyer on Twitter and meetingofmindspodcast.com. Until next time, fiat the one best.